0: In particular, 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 17 will be our focus this morning. 1 Peter 3, verses 13 to 17. We've been thinking about the great things about being church members. And this morning, we think about the theme of witnessing. Witnessing. If you have seen something that captivates you, you speak about it. If you have a great experience of any kind, we we tend to seek out other people who have shared in the experience or we seek out people and we, we want to tell them about the experience so that we feel like they have shared in it with us in some way. A couple of weeks ago, Hannah and I had the great joy of hearing that a family member had got engaged to be married and they couldn't wait to tell us. They told us all about how it happened. They were clearly delighted and we were delighted for them. It would have been very odd if that family member hadn't have gotten in touch the first chance they got, if they just happened to mention the next time we saw them, you know, anything new with you, not much, oh, by the way, I got engaged. Uh, there would have been something very wrong if eagerness to share the news hadn't marked that engaged couple. And it can be the same in all kinds of areas of our lives. When we have great experiences, whether, whether it's enjoying some great Uh, example of sporting prowess, or whether it's enjoying a great piece of music or seeing a beautiful natural sight, we want to share it with others. Our Lord Jesus once said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Now he was speaking at the time to some of his enemies, but the point stands, friends, that what captivates our hearts comes out of our mouths. What captivates our hearts comes out of our mouths. And so, if the Lord Jesus has taken up residence in our hearts, if we love Him for the salvation He has given us, our adoption into the family of God, we will speak about these things. We will want others to know about these things. That's what the Lord Jesus was saying when He commanded His apostles and, by implication, all His followers to be His witnesses. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 and yet witnessing tends to be something that a lot of Christians find difficult. Many of us likely feel like we don't do an awful lot of it or we don't do it well or we feel daunted by the prospect or perhaps we think of witnessing or evangelism mainly in terms of occasional events. We give out invitations We speak to people on their doorstep for a few minutes perhaps or we run a children's Bible club and and that's evangelism or that's uh, the only time we do it. Perhaps we feel daunted by witnessing because of the increasingly hardened sometimes hostile culture that we find ourselves in. We wonder if people will listen or we worry about what the response of a friend or a neighbour will be. But all of that aside, friends, we are called, we are commanded to be witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. A, tr- a heart truly captivated by Jesus will prompt us to speak about Jesus. And Peter takes time here in the middle of a larger section, which is really all about suffering as Christians. He takes time to teach us about witnessing, even at times in the midst of suffering, writing to believers, as I mentioned, scattered across a very wide area of what's now modern day Turkey. They weren't yet facing violent persecution, though they would eventually, but at the time that Peter first wrote, they are facing an increasing amount of social pressure, we might say, slander, gossip, hatred of one kind or another for their faith. And in the midst of that, Peter calls them nonetheless to be witnesses For the Lord Jesus Christ and he highlights in this passage at least three aspects if you like of our witness or or three ways in which we might be witnesses first of all uh, Peter makes very clear that there are times when we will be suffering witnesses suffering witnesses look at verse 13 he says now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good Uh, Peter's asking a, a rhetorical question there. He's really saying to them, if you're living as God commands, if you are, in a sense, good citizens, which Christians should be, if we are living faithfully, diligently, getting on with our ordinary lives, who can have any argument with that? Ordinarily, he seems to be saying, you're not going to be persecuted for living a good life. And yet clearly some of the people to whom Peter was writing We're beginning to suffer for doing good. Look at verse 16. When you are slandered, not if you are slandered, but when, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. As Peter says, one thing that's going to happen, perhaps it was already happening to these believers, you'll be slandered. The particular word that he uses there is quite rare in the New Testament. It's used three times in James chapter 4 and twice here by Peter. Friends, sometimes Christians suffer simply for doing good. Sometimes we suffer simply for doing good. Slander is people just making stuff up about us because we're Christians. Uh, Peter isn't even referring here to preachers as such. He's not, he's not thinking of, of just public uh, you know, open air or uh, a preacher getting up somewhere to preach. He's, he's more general than that. He says suffering for doing good. For, for good behavior in Christ, he says in verse 16. This is the colleague at work who feels ashamed and guilty because the Christian colleague doesn't steal time or resources from the boss, and they do. This is the neighbor who feels guilty because the Christian goes off to worship every Lord's Day morning, and they don't. This is the atheistic university lecturer who marks down the Christian student or sort of picks on them a little bit during class because they believe in God's creation and not the Big Bang. This is the non-Christian family member who is increasingly distant and cold and unwelcome. Or unwelcoming, I should say. Sometimes such people, friends, will grumble, they will gossip, they will Tell outright lies, some of them simply because they know we're Christians and they don't like it. Remember Daniel in Babylon. Remember how his rivals in the Babylonian civil service were getting a bit fed up with how good Daniel was at his job. And so they look out, they spy on him for weeks and weeks trying to catch him out and get him in trouble. And what do they conclude? Daniel 6 verse 4 they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because Daniel was faithful. Then these men said, we shall, not find any, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. See, sometimes, friends, unbelievers see our Christian lives and they just don't like it. John Stock quotes one ancient writer who says, the spectacle of moral beauty does not disarm all the ungodly. They are often irritated by the radiance of a virtue that condemns them. Sort of a fancy way of saying that uh, godly Christian living is just annoying to some, to some non-Christians. It gives them a guilty conscience and they don't like it. And so friends, sometimes we may have to suffer for doing good. And yet Peter says, don't assume that suffering for your faith means that something is going badly wrong. Look at verse 17. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than to suffer for doing evil. It's better to suffer for doing good than to suffer for doing evil. And he brings God's sovereign will into it. God is still sovereign, friends, when we suffer for the sake of the gospel. When people gossip, when people make trouble, even perhaps if we lose a job or get cut off in a relationship, God is sovereign, God knows, and God will vindicate us in the end. Remember the words of Jesus, Matthew 5, verse 11, "'Blessed are you when others revile you "'and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil "'against you falsely on my account. "'Rejoice and be glad.'" for your reward is great in heaven. In other words, don't be so caught up in the here and now, Jesus says, the ups and downs of life in a rocky, sinful, persecuting world. Don't be so caught up on that that you lose sight of what lies ahead, heaven and the rewards of it for believers. And I think that's really at the heart of what Peter's saying back in verse 13, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is, what is good? What he's saying is, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, what's the worst that they can do to you? It's not going to change the fact that you're going to heaven. The rewards will be there for you in Christ. He says in verse 14, have no fear of them. One of the themes of 1 Peter is that we are to fear no one other than God himself. The reverent, humble, respectful fear of God and a a desire to obey him should stifle any fear we might have of anyone else, teammate, family member, colleague, whoever it is. One writer says, fear of human beings, even those who persecute, is forbidden. That's very strong, but it's true. Fear of Fear of man, friends, cannot be allowed to take root in our hearts if we really consider Christ to be Lord, as Peter says in verse fifteen. So friends, here's the first aspect of our witness. We may we may well find that we witness in the midst of suffering. We may well find that our witness causes suffering. And this may be the experience of some of us in the days ahead. Some of you, this is already your experience. The spiteful colleague or neighbour, the lies, estranged family members. Boys and girls, this might be friends at school who no longer include you because you love the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the sort of thing that is likely to happen more and more unless our society, by God's grace, experiences revival. Our beliefs may well become more and more offensive to the sinful watching world around us. And yet, Peter says, Christ says, rejoice. Rejoice. Don't lose hope. Don't doubt God's goodness. Don't quit witnessing. Remember that your reward in heaven will be great. Suffering for the sake of Christ is a reminder that we really do belong to Christ. Remember, that's how the the apostles felt in the first few chapters of Acts when they were first hauled before the Jerusalem authorities. They went home rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. If our hearts are captivated by Christ, friends, we will speak of Christ. And we may suffer for it, but remember when we do, great is our reward in heaven. So we may well find at times that we are suffering witnesses, but nonetheless, we must be speaking witnesses. That's the second aspect of our witness that Peter highlights here, speaking witnesses. Look at verse 15 again. In your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. The language there is emphasizing the uniqueness of Christ, that he is set apart, that he is in a league of his own. He's not just one important name or one inspiring figure. He is God, the Lord. He is our Savior. He is our King. Again, Peter's saying, friends, let your hearts be captivated by him, who he is, what he has done. If you lack motivation to serve him or to speak of him, think more about him, read about him, meditate upon him, and then let that fuel your witness, spur you on to speak That's the natural progression of verse 15. Notice the way that it it all links together, together in verse 15. He says, Honor Christ the Lord as holy, and then always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. And so he's saying that as we honor Christ, as Christ, if you like, looms largest in our minds and hearts, we will then be ready to make our defense and to speak of him to others. There's two aspects of our speaking witness in particular here uh, that Peter is talking about and for us to think more about. First of all, he's saying that we should be ready to speak. We should be ready to speak. Notice he says, verse 15, that we should always be prepared to make a defense always be prepared to make a defense Uh, the word there for defense is the greek word apologia it's where we get our word apologetics from Uh, one of the subjects that our two bible college students will be studying in belfast over the next three years is apologetics it's a whole field of christian thought and, and study And it's about how we explain and defend the Christian faith in the face of questions or objections or the criticisms that people might make. This particular word appears eight times in the New Testament and it almost always refers to someone, usually the Apostle Paul, publicly defending or explaining his faith. You can find examples of that, for example, Acts chapter 22 or Acts chapter 25. And Peter here is not just writing to apostles like Paul, he's writing to all Christians. And he says that we, like Paul, need to be ready to make a defense. You be ready, Peter says, to explain your faith when you get opportunities. And you don't need to have gone to Bible college to do this. And he's not talking about times when we might end up In court making a legal defense for our faith like Paul did and like some Christians today have to do. Friends he's talking again more broadly about the ordinary course of life for all of us as Christians. Always being prepared he says to make a defense to anyone who asks you. Anyone. Your neighbor, your friend, your family member, your colleague, the man on the street, whoever. We should be prepared to speak. Being prepared means we have to drop some of the excuses. Being prepared means that we need to be praying regularly for the help of the Holy Spirit, that we would not be taken aback if we suddenly get an opportunity to explain our faith in the ordinary course of life. It means praying that we would have the words to say in our daily lives to non-Christians, as Christ has promised that we will. Jesus promised on several occasions, do not be afraid in that hour about what you ought to say. The Holy Spirit will give you the words to say, Jesus said. Being prepared means that we know our Bibles well enough to explain the basic truths of our faith to others. We don't have to get through a six-point sermon in five minutes we don't have to be able to answer every question on the spot. It's okay to say, look, I'm not sure about that. Let me go off and ask someone or read further and I'll get back to you. But friends, if, if, we're, if we take seriously, as we do in our denomination, the preaching and teaching of God's word, if we're receiving that week after week, then surely we should be able to explain the basics of the Christian faith to those who ask us. If you're asked this week, or in the weeks to come, explain why, although we take COVID-19 seriously and take precautions against the spread of it and so on, explain why we, we don't live in fear of it. If you're asked, explain why, although you love football as much as your colleagues or your teammates, there's something more important to you than football. If you're asked, explain why you don't work on the Lord's day. And don't just say it's our family day. Say it's the day that we worship God because of a risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says we're to explain the hope that is in us. The hope that is in us. He said back in chapter 1 verse 3, Jesus Christ has caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is a favorite word of Peter's. Christians are to be hope-filled people are we not? We're not just to nod along when people are talking in doom and gloom terms all the time as they tend to do in Northern Ireland. You know we we are to have hope, real hope, sure and certain, living hope because of what Christ has done. Tony Morita says hope in the New Testament is not wishful thinking It's a settled confidence in future glory. Christian hope, friends, is a settled confidence in future glory. This hope energizes our lives now, especially in suffering. And this hope shines in a hopeless world, he says. He goes on, this hope is so rare that some people will ask you about it, particularly when they are going through suffering or when they see you suffering with confidence. And so, as we have opportunity, friends, we are to be people who display, defend, and explain our living hope. We're to be ready to speak. But we're also, as speaking witnesses, we're also to be gentle when we speak. We're to be gentle when we speak. Make your defense, Peter says, explain your faith. But he also adds at the end of verse 15 do it with gentleness and respect with gentleness and respect. Uh, The word respect there is actually the same Greek word as has been used earlier for fear uh, or reverence. And so Peter's already told us that we're not to be fearful of other people. Uh, And so what he most likely is talking about here is he's saying that we're we're to be speaking to others with reverence for God, out of fear of God. That should motivate us in our speaking to others. Uh, We're not to do it pompously or proudly or arrogantly, but with humility and fear of God. And he also says then that we're to have gentleness as we witness. Gentleness, you remember, is part of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, The word here really means strength under control. Gentleness doesn't mean being weak. It means being, in a sense, controlled. You have your, your emotion's under control. Your reaction's under control. And so you're able to speak gently to people who may disagree with you. And Christians don't always get this aspect of our witness right. Sadly, at times, Christians in Northern Ireland have mixed politics with preaching. And the results have been an embarrassment. We get lumped in with angry men giving off at people through megaphones on the street and we don't appear very gentle. Some Christians can end up with a terrible reputation in the public square or in their workplace or in their wider family for being proud and having a superior attitude. And sometimes, friends, non-Christians will label us that way unfairly, but sadly, other times, the label has been pretty accurate for, for Christians. This is to be absolutely avoided. We are to be gentle witnesses, we are to win people with grace, winsomeness, respect, and we are to win them with our hope, with our hope. We live in a world, don't we, of empty hopes? There's a sense in which we don't need to convince people, friends, there's a sense in which we don't need to convince people that their lives are hopeless without Christ. Deep down, people know that. They might not be able to articulate it that way, but they know it. They sense it. They know that no amount of seeing their favorite team win a trophy is going to really make them as happy as they want. They know that all their clothes and all their stuff isn't making them any happier. They're fearful that if they lost their physical health, they might not feel like they have much point in life at all. But when they see us and they see the way we live our lives and respond to crises in our lives and respond to the bad news and difficulties of life in this world, they're to see something different, a hope that they don't have. And if or when they ask, we we need to be prepared to gently, wisely, in a way that fits the moment and the circumstances, explain the reason for the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ we may well be suffering witnesses but nonetheless friends we need to be speaking witnesses and we need to be ready to speak and we need to speak with gentleness so suffering witnesses speaking witnesses but then thirdly and finally and maybe surprisingly also silent witnesses silent witnesses Uh, don't think it's on TV anymore maybe some of you remember that TV show used to be on for years and years silent witness and I think it was all about you know if if someone if there's a a murder victim and and the experts the forensic team that look at the body and just based on the evidence that they see uh, no the 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 victim of course can't speak they've been murdered but the evidence is still there of what might have happened to them Uh, and this show went on for years and years well, Peter says here in verse 16 that there is a sense in which uh, we, we can be witnesses, not so much by what we say, but by the evidence that we put in front of someone, by the way that we live our lives. Look at verse 16. He says, we're to live with a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And again, friends here, the word good behavior is, is not It doesn't include uh, specifically preaching or or proclaiming the gospel. It's, It's just general good deeds, good living. There is a place, friends, for good deeds as well as good words in the Christian life. There is a place for letting our actions do the talking for us as Christians. Now, I would want to qualify this and be careful with this because it can be taken too far sometimes Uh, some of you have maybe heard Christians say preach the gospel use words if necessary well that's nonsense you can't preach the gospel without using words Uh, preaching requires that you speak you have to be speaking but what Peter is saying here as he does elsewhere in his letter that our actions there's a place for our actions to back up what we have been speaking about And to build upon what we have been speaking about. Sometimes good behavior in itself can be part of our witness. If you look back, for example, at 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1. Just look at that verse for a moment. 1 Peter 3 verse 1. He says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word. By the conduct of their wives. Peter's speaking there to Christian women who perhaps got converted after they were married and they're married now to unbelieving husbands. He says they do not obey the word but notice that that implies that perhaps these men have heard the word someone has preached to them and yet they don't yet believe it. They haven't been converted and Peter says to the woman that rather than nagging the husband day after day you need to believe you need to believe have you thought any more about that sermon the preacher preached last week? That The wife can actually have just as much of an impact by showing respect for her husband, living a godly life in front of her husband. She can build on the power of the word preached with the power of a godly life. And he's saying something similar here in verse 16. Godly living can be a silent witness Again, we're not to always be silent witnesses, but there are times when we can let our actions speak for us. And our actions may at times provoke persecution, as we've already considered, but at other times, friends, they might provoke questions. It might just cause a watching unbeliever to ask us for a reason for the hope that is within us. Tony Moretta says, our witness certainly involves more than good deeds, but it definitely includes good deeds. Our witness involves more than good deeds, but it definitely includes good deeds. Jesus himself said, Matthew 5:16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. So that they may see your good works and give glory to your father doesn't mean we never speak but it means that we allow our actions to back up our words and give further weight to them and this is something we're mindful of as parents isn't it or as anyone working with with children knows we're, we're mindful that our example is so important as well as what we say to them if we're totally contradicting what we say to them from God's word well, we're very unlikely to see them won for Christ because they'll just see the hypocrisy in us. So our defense, our words and our actions are to be part of our witness. And if that's the case, friends, we will be living lives glorifying to God whether we see sinners saved or whether we suffer. And I just want to emphasize as we leave this point that Really, the weight of what Peter is saying here and the obvious implication of a lot of what Peter is saying here, friends, is that we must prioritize personal witness and personal evangelism. That is to say, our, our ordinary, the ordinary everyday places where God sends us, our offices, our schools, talking to the neighbor next door, talking to the parent next to us on the touchline, uh, talking to our clients or the people that work on the yard or wherever it may be. These are to be places where we take opportunities to be witnesses. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't also be doing corporate work, corporate witness as a church, of course, in whatever forms we decide to do that. But friends, the the fact that our actions and our behavior and our general good living and, and our way of life as Christians, the fact that that has a role to play in our witness, friends, that assumes that people are getting to see how we live. That they get to see how we respond to the stresses and strains of everyday life and the various scenarios and situations we find ourselves in. They get to see our real life, if you like. There's a limit to how much someone we speak to as part of door-to-door or a parent that sends their child along to a summer Bible club. There's a limit to how much of our lives they can see. Now, of course, in those scenarios, they're still hearing the word preached and we pray that God will use it. And it's, it's not a reason to not do those things, but they are only one form of evangelism. Our personal everyday lives are also to be part of our witness. We are to be ready anytime to so speak and so act that we can explain the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus, Jesus Christ. And yes, our witness in one way or another might lead to suffering. We might suffer the loss of a friendship, the loss of respect, the loss of a job. We might suffer people making our lives difficult simply because they know that we're Christians. But, friends, the way of Christ, the way of the cross, is suffering now for reward later. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ also suffered, friends. Why do we have hope? Why are our hearts captivated with Christ instead of politics or media or possessions or position? It's because Christ gave himself up in our place for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, one perfect man dying for imperfect people, the son of God becoming the savior of the world, suffering the cross before receiving the rewards of heaven. That's the pattern that our lives are to follow. If your heart isn't captivated by Christ today, ask God to give you a new heart that is. And then with that new heart, may we each be committed to witnessing for him. May we be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us about the hope that is within us, the hope of forgiveness, the hope of eternal life. Amen.